We're continuing our series, God's Design for the State. Does God's Word have something to say about government and politics? Romans 13, 1 through 7 is our passage. We're doing this series, God's Design for All of Life, because we believe that God's design reveals His glory. Sin has caused God's design to be marred, it had to be broken. But it's up to us, the people of God, to advance God's design because we believe that the glory of God is at stake. Romans 13, the context is Paul writing not from Rome, but from Corinth. All the Jewish Christians had been kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius. He wasn't happy with the rising number of Christians. The Roman emperor was trying to eradicate Christianity. Therefore, no public official was inviting Paul to offer the opening invocation at an inauguration ceremony. The culture that Paul writes this letter to us, the book of Romans, was a pagan culture, a government that was hostile to Christianity and the people of God. Christianity was illegal for 350 years, and that is the context that Paul writes these words, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but no, not the word of our Lord. It stands forever. Aren't we grateful that we have the word of God? Amen. You may be seated. They told us growing up that at the dinner table, you should avoid talking about two things, religion and politics. Well, we're going to talk about both today. A few years ago, following the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, an article was written and the writer of the article said the Kavanaugh hearings were a look in the mirror in a vivid display of how ugly things had become in our government. And then it ended by saying, what are we going to do about it? Well, I asked the Church of Jesus Christ, what are we going to do about it? How do God's people respond to this historical moment? And how do the people of God put government back in its rightful place. In the 21st century church, we need 
God's design for the state. Because often we see two things happen, even inside the church, that on one extreme, we see even Christians deifying the state to the point where you think that is their ultimate hope. Or the other extreme, we see Christians so complacent that they retreat or ignore what is happening with the government and with politics, that we give our government over to the unbelieving pagan world. We need God's design for the state. We're going to look at briefly by studying Romans 13. First, the authority of the state. Second, the purpose of the state. And third, the church's response to the state. First, the authority of the state. In verses 1 through 2, Paul makes it crystal clear concerning the authority of the state. He says, talking here about the state or in civil authorities, that they are all appointed by who? God. In verses 1 and 2, he says, all those that exist have been instituted by God. What Paul is revealing to the Jewish Christians in Rome and to us today is that God is the one who is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, he is sovereign over all of life, not only our private lives, but our public lives. And he's not only sovereign over the church, but he's over the state. He is sovereign. Paul is trying to remind Jewish Christians in Rome of who truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that everything belongs to him. Yes, Christian, this truly is my Father's world. But we shouldn't be surprised, because all throughout Scripture, we are reminded that God is not only sovereign over the church and over spiritual things, but over all of life, including government and the state. Daniel tells us that it is God alone who raises up kings, and also God alone who takes them down. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says that God raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, that there was nothing that evil Pharaoh did that was not done apart from the sovereign providential hand of God. In John 19 verse 11 when Jesus is standing trial before Pilate, Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you. What is Jesus declaring to Pontius Pilate? I don't care who is Herod. I don't care who Caesar is. I want to let you know that you are a little man and that you have no authority apart from the sovereign authority of Almighty God the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is on his throne and he reigns supreme. That means that every mayor and every governor and every president, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, and Independent, every king and every prime minister serves at the pleasure of almighty God. All authority is in his hands. And that is good news for you and me today. Any authority that our civil authorities have is a derived authority from Almighty God. That is what Romans 13, 1 through 2 is teaching us. But not only does Romans 13 tell us about the authority of the state, 
but it tells us about the purpose of the state, specifically in verses 3 and 4. Now, to understand the purpose of the state and civil authorities, Paul helps us by giving them names. And he uses the name or the title in verse 3, servant. That would be the same title given to a deacon later in the New Testament. It's the same word, diokonos. So what Paul is saying in verses 3 and 4, that civil authorities are deacons. They are servants, serving at the pleasure of Almighty God. In verse 6, he will say that they are ministers. So in verses 3, 4, and 6, he says the civil authorities, the state, are deacons or ministers serving at the pleasure of Almighty God. And here is their purpose, we read in verse 3, and it is a limited purpose. It is a twofold limited purpose that we read in verse 3. For rulers are not terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Paul is saying that the purpose of this state, as servants and ministers of Almighty God, is a limited twofold purpose. On the one hand, they are there to do good and to promote the common good. Secondly, on the other hand, they are there to restrain evil. This is called God's common grace, not his saving grace, but his common grace. And they do it through the power of the sword. And then Paul stops. He says, this is the limited role and purpose of the government. Promote the common good and restrain evil through the power of the sword. You see, God's design for government has always been this, limited in its impact. Why? So that the church could have maximum impact and influence. But because of sin, we now live in a society where government has a maximum impact and influence, and the church has little to no influence at all. You see, what sin has done It has reversed the created order even when it comes to God's design for the state. What Paul wants us to understand is that the state has a sphere. It has a lane, and it needs to stay in that lane. It does not say that the state has the power over the family. It certainly doesn't have the power over the church. You see, the state does not have the power to come in here and tell us what to preach or what to believe or how to worship. But unfortunately, we live in a society where churches and pastors have abdicated their role and their authority and handed it over to the state so that the state has all the authority and the church has no public prophetic witness in the public square. We live our lives, even as Christians, as if the state is the ultimate authority, the great 20th century apologist Francis Schaeffer, who stood in this pulpit about two years before he died, said this concerning the state. The state is to be an agent of justice to restrain evil by punishing the wrongdoer and protect the good in society. When it does the reverse, it has no proper authority. Listen to this. It is then a usurped authority, and as such, it becomes lawless. 
and is tyranny. How true. Do you see why it is so important to elect government officials that advance a theological framework that is defined by the word of God if it is true that agents of the state are here to promote the common good and restrain evil? Why in the world would we not do everything possible to elect government officials that uphold and advance the Christian theological framework for the world and advance God's presence and proper place in the public square? God's design for the state is this, limited, God-fearing, and evil-restraining. Oh, how far we have moved away from that design for the state. God's authority given to the estate. God's purpose for the state. And third and lastly, what should be the church's response to the state? I want to give you three things to think about this week concerning our response to the state as it's defined in God's word. The first is this. If you are here today or listening at home and you labor in military or the government or you are a first responder, I pray that you find utter joy in your calling. Paul calls you a servant. He calls you a minister. And you are in ministry pursuing shalom. And I pray that as a Christian, you would do everything possible to use your influence and your witness because you are God's guardian protecting your neighbor from the evils of this world. And in that vein... Would we do everything possible to pray for our leaders as it's commanded in Scripture, but to encourage other Christians to to vote and to run for public office? If it is true that this is God's common grace to a broken world, may we do everything possible to encourage Christian candidates and to encourage other Christians to vote and have influence to impact culture and policies and politics. Do we not think the policies of our nation would be impacted with more governments in power, with more government officials in power? Of course it would. More men and women declaring that Jesus is Lord and less declaring that Caesar is Lord. Let's do everything in our possible power by God's grace to encourage and to pray for those Christian leaders in public office. The second thing is this. We need to reject as a church the contemporary claim of the separation of church and state. If there was any wall of separation that our founders envisioned, it was simply to keep the state out of the church and not the church out of the state. We have historical precedent on our side. We have 2,000 years of the church of Jesus Christ engaged with the state. If the church was silent and not engaged with the state, this world and Western civilization would be unrecognizable, but it's because of 2,000 years of the church advancing the Christian worldview in the context of government and politics that the Western civilization is the way that it is. Even take the founding of our nation. The founding of our nation, it is not opinion, but it is fact 
that it is the Christian worldview over and against all other worldviews that had the greatest impact in the shaping of our original documents as a nation and the founding of our government, we would not be here today worshiping freely if it wasn't for the Christian theological framework that convicted and compelled the founders of this nation. We need to reject that false claim of the separation between the church and the state. And then third and lastly, we need to declare the lordship of Christ over every earthly power. If Jesus is Lord and he is sovereign, that means he is not only sovereign over the church, but he is sovereign over all things. And we need to declare his lordship, not just on Sunday morning when we sing and when we pray, but we need to declare his lordship over every earthly power, including the state. Because when we don't do that, and we give over the state and the government to an unbelieving pagan world, the only thing that will ultimately result is a secular society and a secular state. A secular state that at best ignores religion and considers Christianity irrelevant, but at worst, silence and cancels all Christianity and eventually deems Christianity illegal. That's a secular society and a secular state. And we have plenty of case studies to show what happens when the church fails to declare the lordship of Christ over every earthly power. We have 150 years of a purely secular state and the advancement of communism and socialism promising utopia only to result in the regimes of China and the Soviet Union alone, 100 million deaths. You see, a purely secular state that fails to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ in the public square will only eventually lead to the degrading of human life, to corruption, tyranny, and the erosion of freedoms, including religious freedoms. When a purely secular state is embraced and we fail to embrace God's design for the state, we have situations like we do today where some states in our union give more rights to animals than a baby in the womb. In a purely secular state, we replace biblical justice with social justice and critical race theory. In a purely secular state, the state forces churches to shut down as they did three years ago and says that they are not essential businesses. That's what happens in a purely secular state, a culture that no longer declares the lordship of Christ. A purely secular state declares that Caesar is Lord and not Jesus. Our ultimate hope as the people of God is not the state, but to declare the lordship of Christ over every square inch of his creation. So how in the world do we do this? How do we find the power to shape culture, including politics and government, from a gospel-centered perspective? Well, of course, we need to look to Jesus. When Jesus was standing before Pilate on trial, was he rattled? Was he combative? No. Did Jesus have a sword in his hand? Of course not. Jesus, in his moment of trial, did not come as the conquering war hero, but as a suffering servant. 
Jesus came not to usher in a kingdom in Rome or Jerusalem, but he came to offer a greater kingdom, a kingdom that has no walls, a kingdom that will have no end, a kingdom that was inaugurated at his resurrection and ascension and one day will be consummated when he comes again in glory. And it was on the cross that Jesus took the sword as an enemy of the state and a persecuted victim of the Roman Empire so that you and I could live fearless lives, never fearing the sword of the state. That is where the power comes from, to live with humility and to live with love and compassion, but with fearlessness and courage and to understand that our power does not come from our political posturing or our wealth or our social status, but it comes from the prophetic witness of the people of God. This is our calling as God's people in our cultural moment. It was 1934, Germany. Adolf Hitler had been chancellor for about a year. The German church that had a great prophetic witness in the nation of Germany was growing concerned by what they were hearing and seeing from Hitler. Hitler, the master manipulator, called several pastors into the chancellery in Berlin to try to convince them that everything would be okay. He told these pastors that their tax-exempt status would remain intact. He convinced them that their religious freedoms would be intact. Uh, He reminded them that they could continue to live peaceful lives as Christians in both private and public. And after Hitler waxed eloquent for several minutes, one young pastor by the name of Martin Niemöller stepped forward and said, Herr Hitler, we are not concerned about the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus will take care of his church. We are concerned about the soul of this nation. And with that, Hitler looked at that young pastor and said, as for the soul of this nation, you can leave that to me. And the pastors did just that. And the churches stayed silent. And it led to one of the greatest atrocities this world has ever seen. What will future generations say about this church? Will we be silent? Will we give God's created order, including the state, over to an unbelieving pagan world? Or will we shape it according to God's design, pointing people to the true King of kings and Lord of lords? Will we respond with fear in the midst of an opposing culture and a secular state, or even by retreating. No, I pray that by God's grace and for his glory, we respond in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who is crowned as the King of kings and Lord of lords right now over every earthly power. What a time. What a time to be a Christian. What an opportunity we have. May we be people that live in light of God's absolute truth, that Jesus is truly Lord of all. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, I do pray. I do pray for revival and reformation in this nation. 
but help us to remember that our Savior will not fly in on Air Force One. But our Savior has come down from his Father's throne to be that suffering servant on the cross, not yielding the sword, but yielding the hope of eternal life, declaring war against the greatest enemy of all, sin and death, and that by way of his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, he is declaring war against anything that might oppose his rightful reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So if there is anyone here today or watching at home that has never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, the ultimate Savior and Lord, may they surrender today, not according to their power, but by grace alone, knowing that it was through Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection that they can have the hope of eternal life. May they repent and be saved. And may we as a people of God not place our faith and our trust in the state, but in the God that gives all authority to the state. May we place our faith and trust in Jesus who is Lord of all and crown not Caesar, but crown Jesus as the rightful King of kings and the Lord of lords who came in grace and will one day come in glory. But in the in-between, reigns and rules through his church so that the world might know, the nations might know who is king and who is Lord. Would you do this, Lord? Would you begin with us and bring about revival that leads to reformation for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.